0: You know, when most people say I'm going to have you host you on my show and I'm not going to provide any questions in advance, my instinct is to turn them down. But you know, with Max, knowing knowing the entertainment value, I think we both get out of it. My instinct was absolutely say yes.
1: Now, just to just to clarify on that point, I did send several questions a year ago, but uh, <laughs> that was before COVID hit. And then uh, I think I may have sent a few questions this time around, but. I've taken a look at Jeremy's inbox and I think he averages around 10,000, uh, you know, unread. So it's, uh, I'm not saying it's an excuse, but I can cut him a little slack <laughs> when it comes, when it comes oh, to come on! Yeah. Um, so, all right. So look, we're going to do a, a quick lightning round. That's kind of my style. Get the juices flowing. Uh, and then we'll jump into the, the real question. So, um, you know, the first, uh, the first question I think this is more of a layup, but what's the sixth digit of pi? Uh,
0: 3.141592654. That's as far as I know. So, right, thank you for that
1: flex is coming, but very nice.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: okay, very well done. Took it to the next level. How about uh, Utah or Tahoe for skiing?
0: Uh, Utah, um, just you know, f- fewer people, more snow. I mean, everyone loves a good seven-foot Sierra cement dump. But uh, right now, just with everybody working remotely, Tahoe's been quite quite crowded. So right. I yeah. I found some solitude in Powder Mountain, Utah, where they cap the number of skiers per day.
1: Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, what does je ne sais pa" mean? I don't know. I thought you would know that one. Okay, apple or orange, <laughs> like to eat. Say,
0: wait, say that again?
1: Apples or oranges, like what, what do you uh, like to eat? Oranges. Oh, nice, okay, cool. I don't have anything witty, witty to <laughs> say there. Okay, and then uh, whiskey or gin? Whiskey, just because
0: I really don't like gin. <laughs>
1: okay, cool. And then seed round or A round?
0: Um, a round for scale venture partners and for Jeremy Kaufman because I do not work at a fund that does seed rounds. But you know, you would obviously pick something different.
1: Exactly. So that that's how we'll kick things off. So, talk to me a little bit about uh, scale their their investment strategy and then if there's been any impact on that strategy because of COVID.
0: Sure, totally. So you know, quick background on scale: we're a San Francisco based uh, venture firm, particularly focused on B2B software, usually at the early to mid stages, once a company has a product and market and early signs of product market fit. So most of the time we're leading or co-leading the Series A or the Series B round. Um, You know, over the years, we've done a lot of Israeli deals, which I think is why we connected in the first place, probably done six, seven, eight uh, Israeli companies from JFrog to Forder to WalkMe. Big ID, Perimeter X, Cognata, Taxi, a whole bunch of them. So, gotcha. you know, I think the, the whole Israeli entre, uh, entrepreneurial focus and especially enterprise focus is a good fit for our fund, just given, you know, we're 100% business software focused. Um, but to your question, how has COVID, you know, changed our strategy? I don't necessarily think it's changed our sh- strategy. I think it's just enabled, you know, everybody is seeing that time to raise a round has gone down. Meaning the idea of being a local fund and having a monopoly in a geography is gone. The Mm -hmm. idea of needing to quote unquote, go to Silicon Valley to raise money or fly around the country between New York and San Francisco, that's gone. Meaning the pace of the rounds and the timing that a round happens is much faster than ever before. So I think it's not that we are targeting different stages or a new strategy. It's just that everybody's got to work in a shorter timeline. And I think the way you do that is you have to be more thematically focused. You need to be faster, um, you know, to get back to entrepreneurs and engage. And yeah, you, unfortunately, you have to make decisions faster. I think, to me, I think that's one of the biggest changes uh, with COVID.
1: Do you think that's a durable change or you think it'll... You know, kind of revert back as we, uh, if we emerge from the the pandemic lifestyle. Um, that's a good question.
0: I think, I think what's going to stay with us absolutely is the idea of a first meeting on Zoom. Um, I think it used to be you might have gone to a coffee shop or you might have gone to someone's office for a first meeting. I think the idea of the 30 minute, you know, Zoom first meeting is absolutely going to stay. It's more efficient for both the VC and the entrepreneur, it makes a ton of sense. I think to your to the second question, you know, does the whole process remain virtual? Probably not. I would imagine that there will be some forms of in-person meetings, but to the extent that it's more towards the back end, more optional, you know, beyond venture, I think one of the the areas where this has been also seen is the IPO roadshows. I mean, the idea of physically, you know, having the investment banking analyst carry around the books and, you know, you fly around the country with the CFO, that's gone. And Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, I think a lot of these changes make sense. So, yeah, I mean, the world's still gonna figure out, you know, this hybrid model, but
1: I don't think the stuff's just gonna disappear. Well, wow, I have so many questions to unpack there, but you know, you, you did mention something about being more thematic. Um, can you maybe just elaborate a bit on that? And has have any of your themes also been, I don't know, accentuated or toned down based on you know sort of this virtualization of of the workforce and the enterprise? Totally. Um, so yeah. So
0: what I meant by thematic was. If you only have seven days to decide on a round and you haven't seen the other companies in the space and you haven't done research in the space, you don't have the time to start from zero anymore. If you had three weeks, in the old world, if you had three weeks, you might've said, oh, this is an interesting idea. I should read up on it. I should go you know, meet some other people in the space. But if you only got six days, you can't do that. So yeah. you basically... You need to be more proactive and thematic, and saying, "I want to better understand what's going on in the world of digital pharmacy." For example, that way, when the digital pharmacy company comes and meets you and needs a term sheet in six days, you know you have a the theoretical possibility, at least, of doing the deal. Um, and to your second question, what what's changed with the pandemic? You know, thematically, a whole lot. Um, definitely, a whole lot. Just because you know, the, it's, it's had a massive impact. You know, one of the areas personally where I've been spending more and more time is digital health. Um, now, that's not to say prior to, to COVID, we weren't spending time there. We did our first, you know, digital health software investments back in 2018, you know, when we first identified it as an area we wanted to invest in, in a real world evidence company called OM1. But, you know, in the last, uh the last year we've done two more digital health investments one in the digital pathology space where the entire premise of the investment is that COVID has caused the fda and the european union to relax certain regulations around you know healthcare and that was the entire premise of the investment so without covid you know that would have that probably would not have come to fruition so i think i think i you can go on and on and i'm sure you can name a whole bunch of examples sure. too of massively massive impacts
1: um, due to COVID. Right. So, um, you know, given the the shortened timelines in, in making these investment decisions, um, do you feel like a lot of, a lot more risk is being taken these days in, in terms of the investment decisions? Because you just don't get a chance to de-risk it through diligence and you're forced to make these very quick, almost intuitive decisions to compete or, I mean, and, and I'd love to hear, you know, your, your thoughts broadly, but also for scale, like, do you guys just pass on a deal if you don't have that thematic knowledge? Cause you don't yes. sort of get pushed into, you know, that sort of yes. risk, riskier call. Yeah.
0: I think you bring it, I think there's a very real scenario that's going on right now, which is that we we have found ourselves passing on things that we like simply because we don't feel that in four days we can possibly get there, which is a a new phenomenon for us. So I would say we have probably elected to turn down certain companies because we felt like we couldn't do it in five days or six days. And for the deals that we have done in five or six days, they have tended to be companies in spaces where we've spent more time, you know, seen the competitors, felt more comfortable. But yeah, I think, I think you have to have some sort of forcing function. Otherwise, your discipline kind of disappears if you're no longer able to have the same information base you had pre or previously. So yeah, I think very practically we
1: have. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, a few more questions on this topic, just because I I find it really fascinating and, you know, germane to the moment. But the first is geographically, um, Mm -hmm. you know, how do you evaluate companies uh, over Zoom? Are, Are you trying to source more deals that are non Silicon Valley because those are not the six day term sheet deals? Or are you seeing this phenomenon play out across the US and and potentially Israel as well?
0: Yeah, I would say, I don't,
1: here's what I'd say.
0: We haven't explicitly said, oh my God, with the pandemic, our percentage of non-San Francisco deals that the firm sees needs to increase from, I don't know, I'm just making this up, 50% yeah. to 70%. We haven't right. said that, but I do right. think that's happening naturally anyway, the, yeah. uh, you know, just this Zoom culture. But I do think, honestly, one thing that we can say is that we've always been very optimistic about companies outside of the Bay Area. You know, yeah. before, even before COVID and before it was popular to you know off, open offices in Israel and Europe, you know, going back to 2015, You know, we led two Series B rounds in Europe, one in Manchester and one in Portugal. Both companies doing very well in Matillion and Unbabel. We've been investing in Israel and oftentimes being the first U.S. investor in Israeli companies since 2013. So I don't think, honestly, you know, there were always some firms that had very strong viewpoints that it was kind of Bay Area or bust. We never had that. And, you know, one of my hypotheses is I spend a lot of time in the world of AI. And one of the things that I I track closely is I love the research that shows how many AI papers are coming from which countries um, and how that's trending over time and how that's changing over time. And one of the interesting things is that unlike prior, you know, technology revolutions, AI is interesting in that, you know, the United States is publishing, you know, 30 to 40% of the key papers in the field. China's got a lot of the key papers, Europe's got a lot of the key papers, Toronto and Waterloo and Canada is an exciting area. So I think, you know, historically we've always been open to it and especially in the AI revolution. I mean, the papers are coming from everywhere, the researchers are everywhere and there's a lot of Mm -hmm. cross-pollinization.
1: And then just to, to close this topic of, you know, Deal timelines, although maybe we'll reopen it later yeah, on. Yeah. Um, are you now at the point where, if you don't feel that pressure, you almost take it as a, a signal that the company's not like high quality, or do you have the ability to, to really evaluate it without feeling that sense of, you know, time constraint that that sometimes we as humans we just get excited by the the race and we hype, yeah, it's hard to control.
0: I don't, um, I don't, there, here's what I'd say. There are certain sectors where every company in that sector is hyped and it's getting done in five days. If you are a bottoms up SaaS company, you know if you are core data infrastructure adjacent to the cloud data warehouse and Snowflake, you know there are certain types of companies they are on trend, they are consensus, they are getting done in four or five days. There are other companies in spaces that are just harder, non-consensus, things like some of the new digital health platforms, you know, some of the, I mean, some of the fintech companies around like QR payments is an area that I think has been quite interesting in the pandemic, when people aren't necessarily like, this is a known trend, but that that question mark does give you some more time to investigate. So I think, you know, if you are a bottoms up core SaaS company going 1 to 5 million in ARR in 1 year and you're not getting done quickly, that's an interesting sign. But you know, if right. you are a, you know, a somewhat secondary or tertiary healthcare market where, you know, people might not have said, "Oh, I really want to go out and look for a digital pathology company," Yeah, I don't think those are moving as quickly, but that doesn't speak to the quality of the company. It speaks to venture consensus
1: and and all that. Right, so there's sort of this like bifurcation, if you will, between the hot consensus deals that everyone just bids up and tries to get in. And mm-hmm. then there's the less obvious companies that, you know, maybe you take a little bit more risk, but you pay a lower price because there's less competition. And I guess from your, you know, Fund manager hat, do you think it makes sense to just kind of have your toes and or your feet in both buckets and just sort of play play both of those styles? Or do you think one of those styles is actually, you know, in, in today's market, much more likely to, to show promising returns?
0: Yeah, we've thought about this as a fund. And honestly, I think different partners have different preferences. I think what you've seen is that you know the long-term SaaS multiple, which you know on a historic basis, starting in 2000 through today, the long-run average has been about 5.6, 5.7x. That's the you know the revenue multiple that SaaS businesses are getting. Right now, that SaaS multiple is about 18x. That's you know that's the highest it's ever been. That's wildly high.
1: So I well, think 2018 it was I think 10, and now it's 18. Yeah. So it did, now it's it, 18. Did move up, you know, since obviously the the beginning, but yeah, it, it jumped yes. in the last few few. Yes,
0: years. sorry, maybe I wasn't being clear. Um the moment in time. A number in 2018 was about a 10x. The moment in time number today is about an 18x. But right. even still, if you aggregate over the longer, the long period of time, it's still 5.6, 5.7. So I think there's some people that are saying, you know, if you don't believe this 18x is sustainable, there are people that are taking less pricing risk. And if you want to take less pricing risk, you can quote-unquote go earlier or you can go into a sector that's not as you know venture trend and venture conventional um, and then there's a second opinion which is that don't be non that maybe this is gonna go down you know very controversial because I know Silicon Valley likes to think this way but don't be non-conventional just for the sake of being non unconventional like you know it's it seems like an odd strategy to say just because other people think that the snowflake adjacent companies are going to be cool th- just because other people think that i should necessarily disagree with that perspective right. now right. if you have a good perspective there by all means you know right. feel that way but this idea of just because everyone else thinks that uh, bottoms up SaaS is cool i'm going to back away from it i think that's a hard that's a hard thing to play now yeah. The way we've solved for that, honestly, is we've done both. You know, our if you look at our deals, there are some deals. You know, we we were the Series B investor in Papaya Global, an Israeli deal, remote right. workforce deal, very much venture consensus on trend. And we believe in that that market, right. we believe in the company, and we led the series B. Right. But then there are other, you know, there are other companies where we've explicitly said, you know. At this level of growth and the multiple required to win the deal, we
1: weren't excited enough
0: to do the deal. So it's it's definitely right. hard.
1: So you mentioned kind of your the preferences of the firm, and I'm curious to dig in a little bit more to your preferences. Um, yeah, you know, maybe share a bit about your journey with AI, and then how it took you into digital health, and you know what these days you're you're getting excited by. Totally.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think every, you know, every investor has a couple, you know, core trends they're looking at at every moment in time. Um, You know, for me, I've spent a lot of time thinking over the last couple of years about, you know, AI at the core business application level at scale, we call that cognitive apps. Um, You know, the core thinking here is that, you know, Basically, we had this last 20 year era of software where the core theme was take on prem and replace it by cloud. So, basically, take the, you know, take uh, HR software that was on premise, move it into the cloud, take Excel and, you know, and then a more modern version of Excel with collaboration. Wow. And basically, the last 20 years has been on prem to cloud across every type of business application. The key thing that you know we think about for the next and what I'm thinking about for the next 10 to 20 years is that quite honestly, at some point, you there's no more on-prem to replace. The cloud has won. And at that point, when the cloud has won, what can businesses do to you know, really differentiate in the ecosystem and not just try to say, I have a prettier UI, uh, and I'm the next generation of Workday and why, you know, something more than just prettier UI next gen. And, and what we think that next generation play is, is what we call cognitive apps of which AI is a important subcomponent. And I think the main thing here with AI and, you know, this next big trend is that cognitive apps are a way to eat the work. So basically, you know, it used to be, we give this example all the time that in this old generation, if you were a small business, you had software to manage your accounting stack. You might have had QuickBooks online. QuickBooks online acts as a repository of data. You store the data there. It's your core system of record. But the next big thing going on, you know, macro level is now it's going to be how can software replace the actually doing the work aka what the human bookkeeper used to do on top of quickbooks online right. so kind of i'm going you know vertical by vertical market by market and thinking about you know here's the core system of record in a given market that stores the data what can you do on top of that core system of record with computer vision natural language processing automation And I think one of the most interesting trends to watch, and I'm actually working on a blog piece um, on this at the moment, is the interplay between these core systems of record, which store the data, and then these AI companies that are sitting on top of these core systems of record. In some cases, the AI company is directly challenging the core system of record. In other cases, they're trying to partner. In a third example, maybe the AI company is coming into a new market where it can simultaneously lay down a system of record and an AI application at once. But macro level, we are, you know, going market by market and saying, what can AI do to, quote unquote, replace the work? Because we do not believe that the next generation of enterprise is a better version or a better UI of Workday. We think the next generation is software that actually eats the work.
1: Wow! So we're going from software eating the world to software eating the work. I hope you guys have trademarked that.
0: We have. Well, we uh, you know we actually you know we have a slide that kind of that describes our thesis, which is you know the basically you know cloud eats software. And now cloud is eating the work, meaning cloud is going to eat the GDP of other sectors. Cloud is going to eat the GDP in, you know, transportation, in just, it's literally going to eat non-software GDP. And we think that it has massive market expansion potential for these types of companies.
1: Right. So let's talk a little bit about the different layers and where you're yeah. more excited? Are you more excited at the infrastructure layer, or more excited at the application level for AI?
0: So the firm is excited about both. I spend more of my time at the application level, but you know we actually will be announcing uh, Israeli investment in an Israeli AI infrastructure company in the next week or two. Kind of, we think it's going to play the role of a, a GitHub for AI models. Um, so we have made investments at the infrastructure level. We absolutely believe that's important, but I personally spend a lot of my time at the application level just because, you know, one of my colleagues does more on the infrastructure side. Um, so, you know, over the, the last couple of years, some of the applications that we've invested in, you know, fraud prevention, you know, AI to actually detect credit card fraud, you know, AI to detect irregularities when it comes to identity in the case of, you know, financial services, we've got a company called SoCure. So yeah, over the last couple of years, we've, you know, I, I basically spend most of my time at the application level.
1: Right. Okay. So, um, you know, I think last year I was going to ask you this question, but it's still kind of relevant, but, um, there was a post by Andreessen about AI-driven versus traditional software businesses, and I'm just curious, you know, when it comes to the business model of AI and how much data you have to compute and how that changes the economics uh, and how much human in the loop is still required in, in many of today's, you know, AI applications. Mm-hmm. How do you think about pricing and, you know, how do you think about underwriting the to, to this new business model in the long run? Totally. So I would say the
0: first, the first comment that I'd make um, is that one of the things that we strongly believe is that, you know, the, what, what we call this level of this layer of cognitive apps, this AI driven software, it's not an entirely new, different thing that exists in a, you know, that exists totally separate from what's come before it. You know we believe SaaS and cloud apps you know are literally going to be a layer in the stack, and then these AI apps are gonna you know exist alongside them as another layer in that stack. So it's not that oh my god, all the rules of SaaS around sales efficiency, magic number, you know, how do you sell both tops down and bottoms up goes out the window. We right. think you know AI sits on top of that. Now, obviously, there's some unique challenges in the AI business model. Around, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, you need to serve up a prediction. And, you know, what that means is that you have to have a strategy to gather data. You know, the data that you gather has to be, you know, differentiated from other people in the ecosystem. So you yourself have a better chance of surfacing good insights. You have to be aware that over time, the algorithm, that AI, you know, algorithm has to get better over time. And you know, the Andreessen Post does a really good job of showing that there is a declining uh, rate of improvement over time. Basically the Andreessen Post hypothesizes there's some asymptotic nature of AI improvement. I think I, 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 bel- I agree with them there about the, you know, the asymptote of AI improvement. I agreed with their, their premise that you know, this idea of totally proprietary data doesn't actually truly exist in the world. But I, what the, the area where I did disagree with that piece was, they were very strong on lower gross margins in AI software. And they basically said that was for two reasons. One, because of the high compute costs associated with AI, and two, because of humans in the loop. I think over time, First off, the cost of compute and AI training runs is going to go down over time. Right. And secondly, human in the loop, You know, one of the things I think people um, misunderstand is that you might start with human in the loop, but then over time, you might get the AI accuracy to a you know, point where you no longer need a human in the loop. So I actually, after that AI and recent post came out, I actually, one of the tools we have at Scale, it's a benchmarking tool called Scale Studio. Yeah. We've basically you know, aggregated a whole hundreds and hundreds of SaaS company data points, um, you know public SaaS comps, companies that we've met with. We just like to have a database of, of all the companies we've interacted with. So I actually yeah. ran a test. I ran a test and I said, Scale Venture Partners has invested in 12 AI companies right okay we've all you know invested in 50 non ai companies so what i actually did was i ran this analysis for equivalent uh, run rate so a million arr 5 million arr 10 million arr and i looked at the gross margin of the 12 you know ai companies versus the non ai companies and i i found that it was you know statistically insignificant the difference in gross margins between the two i think the reason for that is, you know, oftentimes traditional SaaS companies start out lower gross margin than one would think. You know, mm-hmm. if you go back and you look at a company like Datadog over time, or a lot of these cybersecurity companies, when they're at a million, five million, 10 million of run rate, the gross yeah. margins there are pretty low as well. And mm-hmm. let's be clear the median SaaS gross margin is 75%. It's not 80 percent or 85 percent, like people say. If you actually look at the 60 or 65 core SaaS companies, the average yeah. gross margin is 75 percent. So yes, for an AI company that has humans in the loop, um, you know, and high compute costs, yeah, you know, maybe you're 68, 69, 70 percent. But at the end of the day, you know, that's a subset of the AI companies. And also, let's remember. The SAS benchmark is 75%. So it was interesting because I I actually thought the I mean that the piece was very well done, but I think they were a little bit um, they weren't
1: a little bit pessimistic about future improvements in the space. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point because it, it it seems like in the long run, you know, once compute cost comes down and you get the humans out of the loop, it's actually potentially a, a better margin business. Um, which, you know, would maybe allow you to pay a higher price than you would think early on. Yeah.
0: I'd also say, you know, one of the things I remember when, you know, when just kind of starting to look into AI software, one of the arguments for paying up, paying more, paying high prices for AI deals is this idea that, on average, enterprise software typically tends towards oligopoly. You know, there was some interesting, you know, research out of Stanford that shows the median winner in a SaaS category, I think Okta, it gets like 65% market share. The you know the number two is maybe you know half that or less than that. But typically, unlike consumer, which tends towards monopoly. Enterprise right. SaaS tends to, t- to tend towards oligopoly. There yeah. is this thesis that AI-driven SaaS with the idea of proprietary data advantage, the idea right. that the AI algorithm gets better over time, some right. hypothesize that that was an argument for um, you know monopoly in enterprise software, right. which is not typically something you have. Right. So some hypothesize that that's a reason to pay up. I truly haven't seen that, like, you know, in core, you know, core, you know, AI companies like Gong and Chorus, you know, you still got two good companies in the space in credit card fraud prevention. You've got Ford, Riskified, Signified, many others. So I personally haven't seen this idea of AI as a path towards monopoly and therefore the company being more valuable. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit I, I don't have a firm thesis there, but I just, I just haven't seen that uh, thesis come to fruition yet.
1: Fascinating. Really good stuff. So maybe let's switch gears a little bit, talk about the journey for the founder and, you know, w- when they're coming to, to Silicon Valley or when they're coming to scale for, let's start with the A round and then we can, we can move to the B round. But, you know, what are the, what are the things that really get you excited uh, when you're looking at, at a company at, at the A round?
0: Yeah. So I'll just start out and say, I I read this fascinating piece maybe, you know, six, 12 months ago, whose basic claim was the A round of 2020, what is the series B of 2010? And they quantitatively showed that. Like today, when you're raising an A round, you know, 75% of the A rounds done in the United States are in revenue. The median A round in 2020 is done about two, two and a half years since company formation. 10 years ago, it was really, you know, you know, a year. So these A rounds of 2020, I think the first thing I'd say to entrepreneurs, they are fundamentally different than the A rounds of 10 years ago. These companies are further in revenue, they probably raised larger seed rounds, you know, they're more likely to be in revenue. So the first thing I'd say is, I think some of the VC advice that you get around, you know, metrics needed for the A round is a little bit outdated because I think these okay. A rounds are, are fundamentally different. And then secondly, I'd say oftentimes you hear, you raise your A round when you have a million dollars in ARR, like that rule is so, it's such a rule of thumb, but I think more and more with COVID, you know, that it's just, it's that, that is not a a good benchmark and rule of thumb because, you know, it really depends on what industry you're in, what, you know, sector of technology. So first point I'd make when people say, what, what do I need for my A round? My first question is, what space are you in? What sector are you in? Um, So I, you know, I, I do think sometimes the advice, you know, the typical, the typical, you know, talking point gives is a little bit too generic, but happy, happy to go in multiple directions there. You know, you'd ask, you know, at the level of the entrepreneur, what do we get excited about? You know, we, as I said before, we tend to be very thematically based. So are you on trend? Um, you know, do, you, do you, we have a sense of, you know, true revenue growth? One of the things that you know, we believe as a firm is that, you know, the clearest predictor of future growth and future success is near-term growth and near-term success. So the thing that we like to hear is we've had a great three months. Our revenue growth, you know, our growth rate is super high. We might be tiny. We're only 200 K and ARR. But I'm more excited about hearing our growth rate is high. We've had a, a new customer join, a new partnership. I, yeah, I mean, there's, the, you know, we care a lot more about growth rate than we do absolute ARR
1: number. Right. Um, yeah, I wanna, I wanna unpack that a little bit. Um, but before I do, you know, what are there any other sort of things that really, you know, trigger your interest? When it comes to maybe even the team or the you know the product itself, how do you, you know, what, yeah. what kind of gets you excited in those those areas? Totally. I think, you know,
0: often t- stepping back to the macro level, there's always this argument of what do you care about most? Do you care about team? Do you care about market? Do you care about product? Right. Um, and our philosophy is that. It tends to depend on the round type. Like at the seed stage, at your stage, yeah. you know, the market doesn't yet exist. The product might not even exist. So therefore you're investing in, in the person. Um, yeah. At our stage, we are absolutely investing in the person. And of course we care about team. Um, you know, the one of my, you know, one of my colleagues at another venture firm actually wrote a really cool book about what are the, you know, metrics the likelihood of success of founder success different given different founder characteristics meaning did you start a company before where did you go to school technical background versus non-technical and the you know the whole premise of that was that you know this world operates in a whole lot of assumptions about oh you must some people say i prefer technical founders and some people say i prefer the the founder who dropped out of college and there's a whole lot of rules of thumb and this book was, ba- he, the guy published a whole book and he's like, here's the data. Some of these rules of thumb make sense and some of them don't. So what I would say is we absolutely care about founder, we care about team. Um, but one of the, the, I'd say just answering honestly, I think we are market first investors. Um, the market obviously might be new, it might be up and coming, but you know, our core area of interest is, you know, do we think that this can be a big market as evidenced by near interaction. When it comes to the product, we, we typically invest in companies that have an early product. We always like to try out the product. We like to hear customers rave about the product. We, we do care about product, but I think you know, for an entrepreneur listening, what I would say is that every venture capitalist cares about all three of those things, team, product, market. It's just a question of, you know, to what degree do you care more about which
1: given attribute? Sure. So, um, you know, maybe just a quick follow-up there. On on the flip side, what are the things that, you know, kind of make you uh, turned off or, you know, sort of, uh, or a reason to to pass um, that may be non-obvious to founders or maybe are obvious to founders?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the first types of passes are just like the given company, it doesn't fit our criteria, meaning, you know, there are lots of great consumer companies and hardware companies, you know, being started today, but we as a fund, you know, tend to focus on early in revenue enterprise software. So sometimes we just have to tell a founder, you know, this is just a little bit out of scope for us. Um, You know, other, I mean, we, Other reasons why you might not do a deal, you know, it can span everything from, you know, we tried the product and didn't get great, you know, customer feedback on the product. It could be honest, you know, you know, if I had to say the one thing that people don't really know about why turndowns happen, sometimes it's just as simple as, you know, a partner did a deal the week before, or, you know, The, you know, as a fund, we think your digital health company is awesome, but our prior two deals were just in digital health. So from a concentration risk perspective, we might have turned you down. And I think that's, that's most unfortunate. And I, the way, you know, the best way to deal with it, I think, is just be very honest and say, this isn't you. This is, you know, we, we just did another deal in the space and actually, actually mean it. But yeah, I mean, the fact, the sad fact of life is that you are writing a lot of turned down emails and all sorts of reasons for, for why.
1: Yeah. Now, when you talk about, uh, fast revenue growth as sort of a a trigger for, for interest, um, first, can you talk about if there's any difference in vertical, like the growth rate you would expect in a specific vertical versus another vertical to get you excited? Or at the early stage, is it just, you know, three to five X in in a short period of time will just get get you really excited. And then, you know, given that this trend towards what is your growth rate versus what is your absolute is sort of the trigger for interest, couldn't smart founders just start engineering numbers in a way that you know, shows this accelerated growth and how do you account for that? Totally. So I think the way, the word that I
0: would best use to describe what you're looking for is predictability. Um, So for example, if a company just signed a $10 million deal with the largest company, you know, the largest customer in the space, Right. Those ten million dollars are that the you know founder added to their ARR base are not functionally equivalent to ten deals of one million ARR each. Right. Sure. And again, we, like we scale tends to invest when a company has a couple hundred k to low low millions. So this ten million right. example is a little bit made up, but let's say you know you could sign ten customers at a hundred k or one customer at a Out million. A million. Sure. Yeah. At the, in in some industries, like in the automotive space, those are you know big deals. We're investors in uh, Cognata, in you know Israeli company. You know, those right. deals are you know with OEMs. Those are going to be big deals. But there's other you know companies that you know their business model is more bottoms up growth or something like that. So I think when you the thing that you know I'm thinking about every time I look at numbers and I see oh my god, this went you know, 4X this year, I'm thinking about why did it go 4X? What levers can be pulled the, the subsequent year to make sure it can continue to grow that quickly? And was there any, you know, I, I think you use the word kind of, you know, you know, trickery involved. Did, you know, bring the numbers forward to make it look like you were growing fast, but maybe, you know, it's a one-time deal and that, you know, it's unlikely to grow that quickly in the past. That's what we're basically assessing all the time. You know, how predictable is that growth rate? So no, 300% growth across companies A, B, and C are all different. They are all a function of the business model is a bottoms up, you know, bottoms up growth is a top down with an expensive sales rep, you know, as a VC, if you're saying all 300% growth rates are functionally equivalent,
1: you're, you're, you're not doing your job. And then if you've done a deal at the A round that hasn't had that sort of graph, <clears throat> what mm-hmm. gave you the conviction, you know, to sort of pull the trigger without that that sort of growth?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, sometimes, you know, the market just isn't growing that quickly. Um, right. So for example, you know, if you are a newer player in a newer market, um, you know, I, I'll, I'll use the digital pathology company we invested in a couple couple months ago, you know, yeah. they're, you know, very smart team. And they basically said, you know, right now we're hampered by regulation in the United States in the world of digital pathology. And, you know, pathology is basically the study of, of, of cells. So it's the people that are, you know, basically assessing cells from a biop- biopsy and, you know, saying, do I have cancer or not? In the United States, you know, if you are using digital pathology for research reasons, that's totally fine. The government doesn't regulate that. But if you're actually using that for clinical diagnostics, that's super regulated. So, you know, what Procha very honestly said is, you know, at the moment, we can't really address all the clinical use cases. There's regulatory barriers, you know, there's all sorts of barriers. So what we can do is we can go after this one segment. So sometimes the investment thesis is there's a whole big market, right? One segment is addressable. They're actually growing very well in that segment. There's eight or nine other pieces of of the pie that they can't address yet, but you believe they will over time. So, you know, sometimes you know, sometimes the market isn't all there today, but you say they've they've done something so well in one little piece of the market and that allows you to believe, you know, they can unlock other other parts of the market as well.
1: Cool, now you've seen a lot of Israeli companies over the years as well as American companies. What do you think Israeli founders get right and what do you think they get wrong in terms of fundraising? Yeah. Uh,
0: what do Israeli founders get right and wrong? in? In fundraising,
1: yeah, um, can generalize, or, or I guess yeah. what I'm trying to understand is, you know, um, yeah, what do they do well, and where can they improve, um, and then also bring in like how you see Americans do sort of those same yep. things either better or worse. So, uh,
0: I mean, I hate I hate the whole let's stereotype culture by a by a, you know by a, a particular dimension, but. I'll, I'll do it in the, the way of kind of just speaking in generalities and kind of being helpful about some of the characteristics I've observed. Um, so I think one thing that's interesting is that America, you know Americans sell. Um, they sell, they market, they, um, you know, I think Israelis, you know, don't always pitch the, you know, the vision that, uh, that a US-based founder pitches. Um, one thing that I think Israelis, you know, do quite well is they're, you know, very driven. They're very independent. Uh, one of my partners likes to joke that getting an Israeli founder to take your advice uh, is, is quite difficult. So, I mean, I think Israeli founders are opinionated, they're driven, um, they, you know, they believe what they believe and they have very strong opinions, which I like. I like people that push back. You should, right. nobody should be accepting yeah. anyone's advice or thoughts without giving your own your own pushback um, i think I, I think you know you know israeli culture and pitches is you know sometimes a, a vc might ask a question and you know israeli founders you know tend to you know be a little bit more aggressive in, in answering or pushing back and i think that's just a, a style thing and you know i i think I, I don't know what to do with it, but I think it's a, I think it, overall, it's a good trait. Um, you know, people are opinionated. They, you know, they they're willing to work hard and, you know, the success stories in Israel demonstrate that, 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 that attitude, you know, drives results. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I don't know. I'm trying to, add, did, did I add, answer what I you answer, were
1: asking? Yeah. No, I guess, I guess what we're trying to, to figure out is, um, you know, let's say you're seeing the same company coming from Israel and the same company in the U.S. that are competing at a similar, you know, stage. Um, Will an Israeli who doesn't have the same finesse in delivering the story lose to the U.S. competitor um, because the American sort of mindset is is a little bit more adjusted to that language and, and storytelling?
0: And the true answer is I don't know. <laughs>
1: no. um, you know, I think you've seen
0: you've seen companies where the Israeli, you know, in certain markets, you've seen the Israeli company go up against the U.S. company and win, and others, you know, you've seen the U.S. company win. So I don't I don't approach it with a all else equal back the Americans or all else equal right. back the Israelis. I right. genuinely don't have that mindset. I mean, I think, for example. There are some arguments that you know the American companies are investing and in go to market earlier than the Israeli right. companies. Right. You know, Israeli right. companies have a reputation for being more cash efficient, um, lower burn. Um, you know, more operating on a possibly path towards cash flow break even, raising a little bit less venture dollars uh, in return, possibly a lower growth rate. I think those those characteristics tend to be true on average, but you know. If we believe, you know, we, we actually just a few weeks ago backed the Israeli version of the company over the American version of the company exactly. because we believed in the founder, we believed in their experience and, you know, the word of the customers was quite strong. So I would say, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of bias around raising the large rounds and spending as aggressively. Um, but yeah, I, I think, yeah, I genuinely try not to have a all else equal back one type over the other type.
1: Yeah, and I think it's possible because of COVID that, you know, Zoom being sort of this global flattening uh, in terms of the the pixels on the screen, that U.S. funds may become even more uh, open to to doing deals in Israeli companies that aren't located in the U.S., whereas maybe prior to COVID, they would be a little bit more cautious uh, if the company's not Actually, in Palo Alto or or the Bay, so that'll be interesting to see how how the deal volume yeah. shakes out over you know the next few yeah. few years. I mean one years. of
0: the, one of the metrics that we track is actually we track operating expenses per employee um, for our companies, and one thing that we found is that you know Israeli companies have such a you know they're just so much more efficient with the cash that they they have compared to the American companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see how this past year's vintage will shake out only because the amount of capital that's been uh, going into the seed rounds has been creeping up and up, you know, in the six, seven, eight million dollar range. And quite yeah. frankly, at the, at the seed, it's it's hard to be operationally efficient, you know, when you don't have a product or a sales organization in terms of how you actually spend that that cash. So it will be really interesting to see. And then just another point you made earlier about kind of the A round threshold, um, you know, sort of creeping up as well. Like you, you kind of 75% have, or in revenue or what, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. We've seen a fair number of, of deals in Israel that, you know, the A round is getting done at three to four X, the seed round price with little to no improvement on the business side. And there's sort of this, I would say like real estate play as Samil Shah yeah. outlined. Yeah. You know, like we just wanna be in that company. We don't really yeah. care what yeah. the price is. We think it's in the right, you know, domain. And so it's kind of a barbell. It almost feels like either you need to raise on Sizzle with no revenue, or you need to have that chart to get to an A round. And if you're anywhere in between, you're, you're kind of fucked.
0: Yeah. It reminds me of that episode on Silicon Valley uh, with the whole the pre revenue, I mean that whole episode where uh, I forget the name of that crazy character uh, on the show who's basically like, "Don't raise, you got to raise now before you have any revenue. That way you can raise on being pre revenue." Like to some extent, that is that is true because you know when you do raise capital, you know you're benchmarked about against a cohort of peers
1: and.
0: Right you know, when you're pre-revenue, you can't benchmark on revenue. So I think to some extent that's true, but also let's, let's be clear about that. There are certain, you know, founders who might've been repeat founders or might have kind of conventional backgrounds that would, you know, incent to CVC to give them money where the, you know, a different founder, same idea, you know, possibly less know, prestigious background from the sure. types of companies they've worked out can't get the round. So, some people are in a place where they're lucky enough to think about that. Other people just never have the option to begin with to raise that. Right. You know, expectations-based round. So, right. you know, different different backgrounds and different types of people do get right. different opportunities.
1: Right, hundred um, percent. So, you know, we're getting towards the end. Uh, I, I think I'm just gonna ask one more question and then we have a, a question from the audience that maybe we'll close with, but, you know, let's say an Israeli founder um, just raised their seed. What advice would you give them to really, you know, make sure that ahead of time they're thinking strategically about raising an A round from, from the US or, or a scale, for example?
0: Sure. Yeah. So the question is kind of what what advice I can give for somebody that's just kind of raised a seed, you know, in advance of the A from the US investor. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I sometimes get the sense that, you know, founders think that, oh, you know, my seed round process was a certain way. That's the way my A round process is going to look like. So they kind of put off certain
1: I don't know if it's me or if it's Jeremy, but it seems that there's been a freeze. Oh, Hold on. I think I just froze. Perfect. So you were, yeah, you were saying um, there's a thought process of, you know, let me put off what I actually yeah. need to do for a different process. So maybe just start back there, yeah.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we have found is that the best performing companies, the ones that don't need the money most, Counterintuitively will raise the next round the fastest. So sometimes people say, oh, I don't need to, to do this for another year or two years, but the actual data shows that the higher growth, best performing companies, the ones that don't need the money, raise it the fastest. So what we always tell our companies after they've raised a round from us is, you know, you've only, you've got, you know, three quarters to show your next round investor things are going well. So, you know, approach it with the mindset that, you know, for our companies, our median company is raising their next round 15 months after their round from scale venture partners, go down to the seed stage. And it's the same thing. So I, I think this mindset of, you know, I've got two and a half years. I think what we say is you have less time than you think. And, you know, if you feel yourself, you know, if you have a, you know, a, you know, a setback, that's fine, but, you know, proactively address it because things move faster than you think. And in this ecosystem, Series A investors are reaching out three, four months after your seed round. So, you know, right. focus, on, focus on what matters, um, you know, don't put that off and be ready for the A to happen possibly even sooner than you thought it did.
1: Yeah, that, that's great advice. Um I guess the last question that, that came from the crowd and then we'll wrap up is sort of, once scale makes an investment in a company, what you know, sort of is their value add? How do they work with the portfolio? Totally. So I would
0: say we describe our value add kind of, kind of two clear ways. The first is that a lot of seed firms like yourself, you know, the value they're directing is towards the CEO you know, our, one of the things that we believe is that when you get to the series A or the series B, one of the things we can do best is actually make your portfolio executives more effective, um, efficient, functional. So we actually have a whole bunch of functional groups. So we've got a group of 60 CFOs from all of our portfolio companies. You know, it's called the CFO group. Every month we host events for them. They're, you know, they have their own Slack network where they're always chattering back and forth about what is the tax implications of opening an office in you know in the UK with Brexit. And then right. you've got 50, 60 experienced CFOs going back and forth at a level that a VC can't. And we do the same thing for VP marketing, VP product. So functional groups um, is one. And then secondly, you know, you've probably this has probably come across in this talk that we tend to be a pretty quantitative firm. So yeah. we we built this tool called Scale Studio. It's basically right. a benchmarking tool and when companies need to, you know, build their annual plan for the year, we actually, you know, basically built this software which we let our companies use and then when companies build an annual plan, we can say, you know this plan puts you in the 75th percentile on revenue growth and the 50th percentile on sales efficiency. Um, so we kind of built this tool and we think we're unique in the ecosystem. Yes, like for venture capitalists, like building yeah. software to right. help make the companies more effective. Because we think at the, that series A, series B, kind of knowing how you're doing relative to a cohort of others is, is interesting. So I would say those are probably our two most you know, differentiated um, you know, sources of value add. You know, value add, every VC likes to claim all the time. We have a ton of value add. Um, obviously deal dependent, situation dependent, you know, we all, we can offer other help. But I'd say those are two of the, you know, kind of clear, clear things that we do that we've invested our time in and that we care
1: about. Awesome. So Jeremy, it's been phenomenal. Great conversation as always. Hope it was as stimulating as it was entertaining. Um, <laughs> uh, um, your pie question, your pie
0: question threw me. But, yeah,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. It was a pumpkin pie or was it apple pie? That was the real question. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, look forward to to our next conversation. And I take it you're still in Utah at the moment.
0: Still in Utah, um, awesome. just kind of working remotely for the week, and then hopefully okay. get some skiing in on the weekend.
1: Cool. And hopefully your phone uh, thaws out. Maybe you'll put it in some <laughs> rice, and we can do Clubhouse next time. Totally. All right, and awesome. thanks to the audience for for tuning in. And uh, yeah, have a great rest of the, the day and rest of the week. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks, Max. Peace.